Strategy at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Hiromi Sasamoto Collins, tutor in Japanese history in the Department of Asian Studies at the University of Edinburgh. Dr. Sasamoto Collins is the author of Power and Dissent in Imperial Japan, Three Forms of Political Engagement, published by NIAS Press in 2013. Dr. Sasamoto Collins, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you very much for inviting me to your program. Thank you. Well, the reason I wanted to talk with you is you recently published this book, Power and Descent in Imperial Japan, looking at what you call the metamorphosis of the Japanese state and society, calling particular attention to this tension between civil society and absolutism after the Meiji Restoration. So can you elaborate on this and sketch out some of these Meiji institutions and policies that you argue were particularly authoritarian? Uh, Thank you very much for mentioning this tension. I started this project with two rather vague, but to me, very important questions. One is the absence of credible opposition in present-day Japan, say, in the form of political parties or non-governmental voices. The other question or the other sort of curiosity that I wanted to investigate is personal experiences of political dissent in the Japanese context. I wanted to know how, when a people speak out against what appears to be a majority dominant opinion, and go against the grain. So the two things, the absence of of credible opposition in present-day Japan and my interest about personal experiences of political dissent. So this formulation, which is to look at modern Japanese history as a a sequence of the tension and confrontations between centralized state power and voices that challenge it, was my way of dealing with these two questions. To give dissent a proper place in Japanese historiography as a personal act and also a social and political act, and also to describe modern Japanese history more critically from individuals' perspectives. I've noticed many works on modern Japanese history assume that the Japanese have a very strong sense of national consciousness or identity. They are very group-oriented people. Japanese society is very conformist and the pressure for conformity comes from tradition and culture forms. But my starting point was quite different. I felt that to describe modern Japan as culturally and socially homogeneous is not entirely accurate. My impression for someone who brought up and lived and worked in the country, to me, Japanese society is always contentious, like any other society. There are many forms of tensions, but the tension between different opinions and conflicting Interest seemed to me a very normal part of any social organization, and Japan is no exception. So 
I described the tension which sort of emerged after the Meiji Restoration in a quite different ways. Sometimes there's a tension between the civil society and authoritarian government, civil society and absolutism, constitutionalism, absolutist state, um, free government, national unity. So in principle, I thought the tension I'm trying to describe is between a new form of state power, state authority, and the new kind of individualism. I feel after the Meiji Restoration, of course, there are many, many continuities, but one noticeable change is that some Japanese began to talk about such things as individual rights, uh, need, privacy, and their personal desire openly, formally, and question their a government, the social organization, and so on, from this quite individualistic perspective. So I wanted to sort of investigate that kind of interaction between a new form of state and sort of more assertive um, individualistic voices. About the term civil society, uh, you mentioned the tension between civil society and absolutism. Civil society, we can use the word, in my case, interchangeably with participatory democracy. The German political scientist Jürgen Habermas has described a civil society as where state authority is monitored through open, informed and critical discourse by the people and its action is legitimized by public opinion. And I think the core assumption of Habermas's civil society is this assumption of liberal individualism. And I accept his usage. Although Habermas's emphasis is, I think, it's much more sociological. He looked at actual new open forums, such as newspapers, journals, and coffee houses, and so on, where people can meet and exchange opinions. But my focus is more on public debate. But I do share Habermas's assumptions, a liberal individualism. Each person possesses his or her inner life, which should be respected. And in this sense, people are equal with each other. So in a fully functioning participatory or democracy or civil society, each person should be treated equally as an autonomous being and allowed to take part uh, spontaneously in the management of the affairs of their society. Um, whether this kind of civil society existed shortly after the Meiji Restoration is a probably open question, but to analyze modern Japanese history based on that assumption is not the same as to question whether post-Restoration Japan really started to show signs of civil society. And my interest is former. I'm interested to ask what kind of knowledge we can gain if we look at modern Japanese history based on this assumption. The definition of Meiji absolutism is much more complicated. 
In the 1930s, Japanese Marxists started to use the concept of absolutism to criticize the Japanese state and capitalist economy. And their definition is really a combination of the empire system, feudal land ownership, and monopolistic capitalism based on their analysis of the contemporaneous Japanese state. And I largely agree or accept their formulation. But my primary interest is, is not to describe the major characteristics of the major state, but to understand how people, some of the most articulate ones, dealt with the power associated with the state. You mentioned the pre-war Japanese communists uh, who are looking at the Meiji Restoration as maybe an incomplete revolution. Yes. Uh, this also brings to mind the work of E.H. Norman, who being here in Canada, we, we have a tie with UBC has the E.H. Norman papers, for example. But as you said, you're interested not so much in the constructions of, of state authoritarianism, but really how the people reacted to that and, and looking particularly at intellectual dissidents. Yes, yeah. And so you describe three of these dissidents in your book who challenged the authoritarianism of the Meiji state. Can you introduce us to these three and briefly tell us about their activities? Okay. I introduced three people. Minobe Tatsukichi, who was a constitutional scholar and is perhaps well known his advocacy of the Emperor as organ theory in 1912, which eventually became a target of nationalist and militarist attacks in the late 1930s. My understanding is that he's trying to introduce idea of the rule of law. The power given to the state is not limitless. It must be contained and it must be regulated through the means of the law. So I was curious about his idea of the law and the political policy. In a way, he's a part of the political elite, but he published quite extensively about not just the constitutional matters, but the required change about the electoral system. He's very critical of the House of Peers because the House was given almost the same power as House of Representatives. He was also talking about reforms of the courts and abuse of police power. He's quite liberal, I would think, as a legal scholar. Sakai Toshihiko was a socialist leader. Um, he helped establish the Japanese Socialist Party in 1906 and also um, Japanese Communist Party 1922. He was a very close friend of Koto Shusei. He translated with Shusei and published the Communist Manifesto in 1905, but he was not anarchist or diehard communist. He was rather like a social democrat. He became quite critical about one-party-led communist system. So I was very interested in the socialist thought because its socialist thought was very, very important to the development of Japanese political thought in general. But his socialism is much more flexible and it pays much more attention to this 
individual desire to fulfill their own need or dream and so on. I'm interested. So he's sort of a very socialist, but very individualistic kind of a person I'm interested in. Saito Takao is a politician, a conservative politician, who criticized government war policy in 1940. Japan was really moving towards launching a war after the outbreak of the Sino-Japanese war. He was not pacifist, but he was very concerned with the government behavior going to war without clear objective, clear explanation. It's not something constitutional government should do. So he attacked quite severely the military-led government in 1940. And as a result, he was again expelled uh, from parliament. He's a minor politician, but also contributed to the introduction of universal male suffrage, so committed British-style constitutionalism. So, so it's a these people are all political elite, I think. Their activities are mainly in areas of public debate through, say, publishing the articles in the professional journals or newspapers, popular magazines, public speeches. I think they were kind of new kind of public intellectuals. Again, they could talk about such things as people's rights, autonomy, and then criticize government action based on the view of individualism. Saito, for instance, was a farmer's son, and it wouldn't be impossible for people like him to become a member of parliament and really talk about such things as individual or people's liberty and so on. Of those three, I think Minobe Tatsukichi might be the most well-known. And as you mentioned, it's in the mid-30s that he gets pushed out of parliament as, as one of these so-called red professors along with the Takigawa mm-hmm. affair. But I'm really curious, you know, what was the larger societal reaction to all three of these individuals? You mentioned Minobe's emperor organ theory is initially published in 1912, which yes. is the same year that the Meiji emperor dies. I mean, so was it already seen as controversial in 1912, or is this just a sign of how much things shifted by the 1930s? I think it's a, a great shift. When he introduced or discussed this emperor's organ theory publicly, that theory was more or less accepted. Many textbooks on Japanese constitution actually mentioned the emperor's organ theory as a orthodox theory. So you can see drastic shift in Japan from much more normal constitutional system to very rigid, almost rejection of constitutional theory. So Minove's probably life gives us a kind of a commentary on Japanese society, you know, how drastically it really changed. That's a great point about how this state-society relationship changes over the course of both the pre-war period and then into the post-war period. And one of the anecdotes that keeps coming up in the podcast series is that Japan didn't have a storming of the Bastille, you know, marking 
the beginning of the Meiji Restoration. And, you know, to kind of extrapolate on that, you could say that a lot of political changes in Japan really have been somewhat top down. But that said, we don't, we, we also should recognize that there is constant tension between the state and the society. We could look at all of these protest movements going, you know, the Uchi Kawashi riots leading up to the restoration. Then you have the popular rights movement and the protests growing from that in the 1880s, the decade of violence in Tokyo, the 19 teens, you know, on and on, even in the 1960s, even today. So it's important that we recognize this constant push and pull. But you mentioned that there's a shift in, in it as well, especially in that pre-war period. So can you map out some of those shifts over time? How do you think that this relationship has changed over the years? It's a difficult question, but at the same time, if we look at the things which are really visible, like uh, riots and uh, demonstrations and so on, it might be just possible to say Japanese didn't really go through a radical social political transformation that's i think the one way of looking at it but at the same time alternative approach is possible if we want to understand the meiji restoration and its consequences in a way which is more relevant to us today and perhaps here we need to examine how Japanese, especially, um, I would think, the educated elite, how strongly they committed to certain values and there are certain weaknesses of the political elite, including intellectuals. Perhaps the three people I mentioned are kind of exceptional. They adhered to certain principles because for them, these principles are really central to their worldview, their value system. So why it's so fragile? At least the Japanese managed to produce a parliamentary system and other things as well. But why did it go so easily to something different? It's a responsibility of not just politicians, but intellectuals. That's the core of civil society. It requires intellectuals who are able to articulate the social problems and propose alternative visions and being critical of the state and that core of the civil society was extremely fragile therefore quite simply when the political pressure became so strong that caused to be crushed disappeared um my sort of interpretation might be a bit elitist you know the, what's about ordinary people to blame ordinary people for the failure of Japanese democracy is a little bit unfair because ordinary people live their life, they have to do everyday things. They don't have time. They don't have opportunities to think and act. But the intellectuals, professionals, like scholars and journalists and politicians are different. You mentioned before that you started the project from this question of you know, why is there such an absence of opposition in Japan today? And certainly that's something that Japan is accused of, having this very low level of civil society and low level of, of civic engagement where people are more interested in the kind of TV shows and comedians on TV and, and idols than they are in politics. But at the same time, there are protest movements in Japan today 
Uh, and you were saying that you know maybe we shouldn't blame the normal people. We should blame the institutions instead. Would you say the same is true for Japan today? I think if they are given a clear explanations, clear alternatives, I would think they would respond. And I think they are, each person has ability to make judgment. So if the Japanese society looks very, how do you say, low-level civil society, first responsibility or blame, I think this should go to professionals, perhaps even scholars, even historians, even sociologists. I always impressed and uh, moved by the writing of the post-war generation, like Mariama Maso, people who are described as modernist. Their way of analyzing the state system, authority, and questioning it, and also the Japanese society, you know, questioning the Japanese society, the practices, and it's so deep and critical. And I think the post-war Japanese liberalism immediately after the war ended can be described as a much more liberal. Um, I feel it's thanks to their work, intellectual commitment. Um, if we don't see vibrant civil society in Japan now, um, perhaps, it, as I say, it's a failure of intellectuals. I probably <laughs> should include myself, perhaps, um, it's our inability to articulate the problems that Japan has now. From historians' point of view, perhaps Japan needs to look at its history, especially modern history, after the Meiji Restoration, uh, more critically. It was a militant state. It was colonialist. Its objective was really to pursue the so-called national achievement goal. And But it's, in fact, such a sort of national grand narrative was provided, created by the political elite, the people who had a power. It's not really the narrative created, accepted by ordinary people. So now we need to bring out a different kind of narrative, different kind of perspective, which is much more relevant to our value system. Um, I do believe there is a such thing as a universal values. It's the value of the individuals. The person should be really respected for being a unique human being. If Japanese society looks much more undemocratic or low-level civil society, what we can do is to inject much debate about really values, um, really person's point of view, not state's point of view. Very often the intellectuals sometimes fail to think about the social issues or government policy from the individual's perspective. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. 
Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.